One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Next month, on September the 18th, the people of Scotland will vote to decide whether to stay part of the United Kingdom or whether to form an independent nation. Even those who decide to stay within the Union hold a very deep sense of Scottish identity. Of course, the concepts of England, Scotland and Wales have not existed forever. They can be traced back to the centuries following the breakup of the Roman Empire a period of high levels of migration, and crystallised in the 10th century, when in 937 the King of England fought the Norse-Irish King of Dublin, the King of the Scots, plus the armies of smaller northern British kingdoms. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Brunanburh, Part 1 of 3. Since I want to cover quite a lot in the story of early Britain, I will split this narrative into three sections. The first will be about the centuries immediately after the fall of the Roman Empire. In the second, I will talk about the coming of the Vikings. And in the third, I will describe the Battle of Brunanburh and the events that led up to it. Today we think of Great Britain in terms of England, Scotland and Wales but this modern map must be put out of mind if one wishes to understand the island's previous makeup. Before and during Roman Britain, there was no such thing as England, since the Anglo-Saxons had not yet arrived. There was also no Scotland, since the Scots had also not yet arrived in Scotland. And there was no clearly defined border of Wales. The inhabitants then of mainland Britain were a people called the Britons, who were related to the Celts on the mainland of Europe. This is the story of how they lost control of their lands to invaders from overseas and about the birth of new national and regional identities. In the AD 40s, the native Britons, except those in the far north, were conquered by the Romans, who ruled over them for the best part of four centuries. However, as described in previous podcasts, Throughout the 400s, the Roman Empire gradually disintegrated. Just as in mainland Europe, Britain suffered increasing pressure from barbarian attack on all sides, and effective defence was blunted by lack of imperial troops and frequent civil wars. Pirates from Ireland attacked the west coast of Britain. A tribe called the Picts in mountainous Scotland could never be militarily subjugated, while the east coast started suffering raids from the region of today's northern Germany and Denmark. Ancient Rome's influence in Britain declined from the year AD 407. In this year, the commander of Britain, Flavius Claudius Constantinus, 
became the latest to try his luck in becoming emperor, and was hence known as Constantine III. He crossed the Channel to Gaul with his army to stake his claim, but was defeated by the forces of the Emperor Honorius. It is unclear how many troops remained in Britain or ever returned, and no records have survived of any reappointments to the position of Commander-in-Chief in Britain, although we can't be sure what was happening since the sources for this period are exceptionally scant. Most likely, after the disappearance of the top level of military and civil government, the responsibility for administration and justice fell to municipal authorities. They in turn struggled against the emergence of local warlords. This disintegration of order was likely similar to that of the better documented Roman Gaul, but historians here have to rely on guesswork with the help of archaeology. The archaeological evidence we have suggests that a terminal decline in living standards had already begun in the 360s. Urban areas were being abandoned and reverting to nature, while some of the population moved into ancient hill forts, which had previously been abandoned for centuries. The great villas of the landowners were also falling into disrepair, perhaps damaged by raiders, but mostly victims of the usual disasters of ancient life such as an accidental fire, poor engineering or subsidence, and the inability of their owners to afford repairs. The only substantial, reliable, contemporary work for Britain in this period is a work by a British monk called Gildas, called Ruin of Britain. Written in the 540s, its purpose was principally to denounce the evils of the day, though it does provide a useful narrative of events. He writes that Saxon invaders who had been making raids in the Channel were hired by rulers in southern Britain to defend the coasts against the Irish and Picts, but that they ended up rebelling against the native Britons and conquered the eastern half of Britain for themselves. Another source for this period, although written later, in 731, was by a monk in Northumbria named the Venerable Bede. His work the ecclesiastical history of the English people is invaluable for British history from the 5th to early 8th century, although its chronology is unreliable before the 6th century. He describes the Germanic invaders as coming from three very powerful tribes, the Saxons, the Angles and the Jutes. And archaeology backs up the claims they arrived from the same broad culture of southern Scandinavia, Germany and northern France. Over the course of the 5th and 6th centuries, the disintegrating Romano-British culture merged with that of the immigrants to coalesce into novel identities such as Englishness. Less powerful kingdoms were absorbed into large ones, so that by the early 7th century, England was divided into several large Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. These were Kent in the southeast, Sussex, that is the South Saxons, Wessex, the West Saxons, Essex, the East Saxons, East Anglia, Mercia in the Midlands, and Northumbria, north of the Humber River. The native Britons had been pushed to the western fringes, such as Cornwall in the southwest, Wales in the midwest, and Cumbria and Strathclyde in the northwest.
Although the British had been converted to Christianity, under the Romans, their beliefs were slipping. Prompting the Pope in 595, Gregory the Great, to send a mission to revive the religion. He chose Kent, since it was the closest to the continent, because his king was already married to a French Christian princess. Not only did King Ethelbert of Kent readily convert, but the mission was soon after successfully extended to the far northwest in Northumbria. Christianity continued to spread rapidly among other kings, as well as the general population of Britain. As well as influence from Rome, Irish missionaries were successful, for example in strengthening Christianity in Northumbria and converting the northern Picts. They did, however, have disagreements with Rome on issues such as what day Easter should be celebrated on. At the Synod of Whitby, in the year 664, King Oswy of Northumbria came down in favour of the Roman side. From that time on, the Church throughout England became united under the authority of Rome and turned its back on the Celtic version of the religion. The spread of Christianity brought with it an expansion of literacy, at least within newly established monasteries and royal courts. Thanks to this, the fog of uncertainty for these dark ages begins to lift just a little. Despite a general conglomeration of power, the people still held a strong sense of regional identity. In Mercia, for example, the true Mercians were just one among about 30 peoples who lived within the borders of the kingdom. Each had their own tribal centre, and some even their own kings. Some of these tribes numbered several thousand households, such as the Havidza, whose name survives in the Witchwood Forest of Oxfordshire, while others numbered only a few hundred households. In the year 757, the new king of Mercia in central England went by the name of Offa. He travelled constantly throughout his kingdom to make his presence felt among both friends and enemies, and also outside to extend his power further. In 785, Offa took direct control of Kent, at the time the oldest, most settled and most civilised kingdom in England. The last ten years of his reign then saw an explosion of Mercian power, prestige and cultural achievement. Offa is known to have had close diplomatic dealings with contemporary continental rulers, including with Charlemagne, King of the Franks. It was at this time when he took the decision for which he is best remembered today. He built the dyke along the Welsh frontier, now known as Offa's Dyke. The exact reason is unknown, but what is clear from the Welsh chronicles is continuous warfare between Offa and the Welsh. Anyhow, the effect of this fortified barrier was to help crystallise the border between England and Wales. Offa died in July 796, and Mercian supremacy over southern England soon collapsed and never recovered. The squabbling Anglo-Saxon kingdoms now faced a new enemy, the Vikings, a new and terrible threat to their whole way of life. Fortunately for the Anglo-Saxons, within their ranks was the man who would not only heroically save his kingdom from annihilation when all seemed lost, but would lay the foundations for the future of the state of England. That man was Alfred the Great, whose time I will describe next week.
Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.